0: Welcome to our discussion of theory as reproduction. Uh, I'm Caroline Schuster. Um, and here we, I am with Ben Hegarty, uh, speaking from the Acton campus of the ANU. We acknowledge that we are the guests uh, on Ngunnawal and Manbury country. Uh, the sovereignty was never ceded. And uh, that we acknowledge their elders past and present. Um, and this is particularly um, on my mind as I'm thinking about the intersection of settler colonialism, gender and sexuality in uh, my work, my recent work, Um, and we'll be discussing more broadly today. Ben! Hi!
1: Thank you so much, Carly. My name is Benjamin Hegarty. Uh, I'm a Mackenzie Fellow at the University of Melbourne. Um, I'm joining uh, Carly uh, here today to speak about and think about together the ways in which uh, feminist and also queer kind of theories might generate new insights into ethnographic research and and what it is to do anthropology located as we are, um, each of us in different ways in in Australia today. Um, I might also ask our third uh, co-podcaster to introduce herself.
2: Hello, hi, Ben and Carly. This is Shiori Shakuto, joining you all from Japan as I conduct fieldwork um, here in um, Tokyo. So I am an anthropologist um, of feminist feminism and transnationalism, and currently I am very interested in what does it mean what what it means to do feminist anthropology or queer anthropology and what type of methodological innovations that come with it. So I look very much forward to uh, this conversation and explore this very important topic together.
1: Great, thank you so much, Shiori. So now we're all uh, acquainted and we've introduced ourselves. um, I might kind of start by framing some of the thinking that brought us to this conversation. Um, and the ways in which we might kind of frame, I guess, some of, some of the discussions that we're going to be having today. So, this uh, particular podcast comes out of a series now of two roundtables held at subsequent Australian Anthropological Society conferences in uh, 2019 and 2021, uh, respectively. Uh, the first one is available also as a, as a podcast um, uh, on the Family Estrange. Entitled "Theory is Reproduction: Reflections on the History of Doing Feminist Anthropology in Australia," so in both of those uh, kind of roundtables, we we kind of tried to examine in different ways the history of a feminist tradition in Australian anthropology and the ways in which it offers a, a vantage point on broader Australian um, anthropological and scholarly traditions. So we kind of invited a group of incredible um, feminist anthropologists based here in Australia to kind of reflect on a series of prompts or questions. So it kind of uh, traversed the fields of, I guess, boundaries between oral history and kinds of um, conversations. And in the best feminist insight, tradition, in right? the best feminist <laughs> tradition, the kind of um, gossip and and um, insider knowledge or- or, or the always- rearing. That's right, <laughs> the personal and the political. Um, so that conversation, uh, which was, kind of absolutely fascinating and generative in so many ways, then led to a second uh, roundtable at the Australian Anthropological Society Conference in 2021 on feminist anthropology, in which we, and Shiodi, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but we we sought to expand the conversation to really place those feminist histories into dialogue with kind of transnational um, kind of frames for, for doing anthropological research, to think about the kinds of uh, ways in which feminist and queer theories offer different methods and, and toolkits for uh, approaching ethnography, but how they're always kind of grounded within specific kind of histories of of knowledge production, um, which which you know have the possibility for for inclusion and exclusion in different ways. So, with that kind of little overview in mind, Shiori, I might ask you to reflect a little bit on. I guess the ways in which your own work might resonate within what we 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 call a feminist we could call a feminist uh, tradition.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, just to add to this brilliant introduction by Ben, um, the two thousand twenty-one panel was so great in a sense to see the emerging voices in feminist anthropology in Australia in conversation with. Uh, those forerunners of feminist anthropology uh, in Australia. So it was really nice to see some some of the emerging issues and how these issues were also um, embedded in an important foundation uh, created by these forerunners who we featured in 2020. So I think um, that kind of uh, is also related to my own relationship with feminist anthropology um, as well. So I think one of the important features of feminist anthropology, at least for me, is that the interpretations is always fluid. And it changes um, as the interpreter or as myself um, evolves in conversation with interlocutors and in conversation with things that's happening. So my work has evolved. My interpretation of my work has evolved over the last five years. Um, so, my work, the, the work that I started with was to do with the group of um, Japanese retirees who retire but then decide to pursue an exciting new project to retire in another country, uh, in this case, Malaysia. So, I was initially interested in um, their entrepreneurial spirits, but then while I was doing the field work, I realized that this creation of entrepreneurial selves in old age actually have tremendous impact on their gender relations. But even then, um, I couldn't really see that at the beginning, this gender aspect of my work. It was only after I came back from fieldwork and it was through sharing my results with my colleagues that my colleagues told me, "Um, gender is shouting from your material. So I think Again, this whole process of sharing your findings, sharing your knowledge, and to learn together with others, that in itself for me was, um, was a process or methodologies of feminist anthropology. So I ended up um, focusing a lot on the intersection between gender relations, ageing, and transnationalism. So I might um, <laughs> end there and then bring it back to you, Ben and Carly. How does feminist anthropology feature in your work?
1: Thank you so much. Um, great. Kali, would you like to, to jump off on that? Uh,
0: yeah. And also commenting that, or sort of reflecting back that, uh, Shiori, I remember that moment of you coming back from fieldwork and working through some of your you kind know, of data. And then it just was so important to kind of have um, those spaces for dialogue and for working through um, and the sort of... Um, kind of collective, um, kind of fellow travelers who are able to work with really, uh, kind of familiar and shared, um, kind of theoretical precepts. So a shared commitment to kind of questions around, um, kind of gendered subjectivity, but also, um, kind of a real sort of concern for justice and the justice of those uh, kind of social arrangements and the forms of ordering that they entail, long standing questions in uh, kind of feminist theory about the production of the public and private, which you see kind of manifesting in your work, um, in really important ways. And so I really think it was the fact that, and Ben was part of that conversation, kind of obviously, there's a whole kind of group of us who were sort of working through material um, at the same time. And uh, one thing that's really powerful to me about the sort of shared genealogies of feminist thought is that it gives us conceptual resources to kind of be fellow travelers together and to kind of work through um, those early thought processes and support um, kind of daring and brave analysis that might not otherwise kind of emerge um, if we didn't have that kind of shared conversation. So um, that was really exciting to kind of watch and be a kind of participant in um and um kind of partner um in that process of data analysis and also kind of see some of my kind of feminist colleagues those in this podcast room but kind of others um sort of fingerprints all over my work in a really generative way because of that um kind of shared vocabulary so uh, on the face of it, my kind of current research doesn't kind of really look like it has a kind of deep feminist genealogy in the sense that I right now I'm looking at um, processes of financialization uh, and especially how. The kind of financial mode of capitalism uh, kind of captures the life projects and life worlds of um, kind of people who are kind of really suffering the kind of first um, pretty dramatic effects of planetary kind of environmental damage um, and especially weather disasters in Latin America, how those get tangled up with weather derivatives. uh, They're now being kind of sold to local farming communities. Uh, So, on the face of it, it doesn't kind of really look uh, kind of feminist. But uh, this sort of shared commitment to a set of tools and perspectives and social justice concerns and dialogues, like really center kind of questions of interdependency and social reproduction kind of at the heart of that project. So you know, looking through the lens of uh, kind of kinship and relational belonging, we get a very different story about what those financial instruments look like than if you take a sort of top down kind of structural view about how people are kind of pushed around by uh, kind of some of these political economy uh, kind of processes. So, um, one can be a sort of feminist anthropologist in, um, in many ways. And that comes from a kind of longer commitment to understanding how, um, collective forms of indebtedness and collective forms of economic sociality both rely on and reproduce um, particular kind of gendered orderings of the world. So uh, without kind of really uh, grappling with uh, that gender order and uh, the kind of matrix of possibilities that it opens up or forecloses for people, then we get a very limited view of what some of the uh, kind of economic effects of the world Kind of are, what that looks like. Um, I've spent a lot of time working in Latin America on these uh, kind of questions, which have um, a sort of ongoing um, kind of set of dialogues and debates in feminist and especially feminist Marxist um, uh, social theory, uh, which I'm excited to talk about over the course of this uh, kind of dialogue. And, um, as an American or sort of US-based uh, kind of academic moving first to Latin America and then to Australia, it's been really revealing to think about those genealogies of intellectual thought coming from you kind know, of different sets of conversations, uh, different collectivities with different commitments. Um, and that's part of what animated our discussion, kind of thinking about what those different genealogies uh, kind of look like and what sort of being um, kind of here in Australia, what that kind of might offer in terms of a a toolkit to think about um, kind of feminist and queer theory. Ben, you were also part of our kind of early discussions.
1: (laughs) I have been, yeah, and I I have, I guess that is probably where I would start, is is the kind of way in which feminist theories can help us to, I guess, bind together or, or observe different kinds of relations in new ways, right? And this is especially pressing and important in light of the kinds of institutional spaces in universities um, in, in contemporary Australia and perhaps more broadly, um, which which I, I don't think always foster the kinds of forms of relations that are conducive to, to engaging with, um, you know, engaging in ways of, you know, for instance, of scholarly generosity, of, um, of care and concern, of um of of uh i guess a kind of shared or uh, collaborative kind of approach to um knowledge production so i i would start by saying you know for me personally i guess a kind of queer and feminist theoretical orientation has been grounded primarily in in in, in its meaning there that you know we we kind of generate these kinds of dense relationships with their own genealogies um and you know inheritances and we kind of those sit in interesting ways right or distinctive ways in relation to the kind of formal structures or um what we might call you know the kind of infrastructures of knowledge production be they theoretical um or be they kind of um you know um you know financial um, or otherwise so you know for me personally coming to um a you know PhD program in anthropology uh was was something that was exciting because I, <laughs> I like anthropology but it wasn't always necessarily um a space that I found to be an inclusive one or an easy one to to work in um you know as a as a, as a gay man um you know I I, I don't think it's I mean, perhaps Australian anthropology um, in particular, um, I think in really interesting ways, has a very kind of rugged and masculinist um, reputation. Um, And certainly um, among, you know, in some kinds of historical instances um, and institutional instances has taken on that form. Um, And we address that in really interesting ways in our conversation um, together with, with several uh, several of those who were at our, our first round table. So Francesca Merlin, um, uh, Kathy, uh, Kathy Robinson, um, Christine Halliwell, um,
0: Koppin-A-Rom.
1: Yes, Koppin-A-Rom.
0: Who else are we?
1: Margaret and Margaret Jolie, Yeah, Margaret Jolie, of course, a... and
0: Martha McIntyre. And
1: Martha McIntyre, all of whom kind of you know, at different points in time had had, a, a, to, to my knowledge, had have had an affiliation with, with the ANU and kind of, you know, particular kinds of moments, you know, stood out as those in which, you know, a kind of feminist um, project of solidarity really helped to draw together and give visibility to voices that were were excluded. So, you know, not saying that my own experience was was along similar lines, but certainly, you know, coming into an anthrop- you know, anthropology, a history of anthropology, which is historically um, not necessarily always been inclusive of of, of diverse voices, be they, um, you know, racial or gendered or sexual, um, you know, kind of coming at it with this this possibility of kind of spotting those others, you know, who are fellow travelers, right? And kind of acknowledging the ways in which we might form together and build, you know, strong relationships, you know, friendships, and, and kind of, I guess, um, forms of intellectual inquiry that could offer other kinds of theoretical insights. So I guess that's, that's the kind of first um, point that I would make. For, for me personally, so, you know, my, my research, my PhD research and my subsequent book, which is forthcoming this year with Cornell University Press, it's entitled The Made Up State. Technology, Trans Femininity and Citizenship in Indonesia, um, came out of, thank you, Chiari, uh you know, a, a decade of, of work really, working with queer um, and trans Indonesian Indonesian communities. So my own kind of coming to Indonesia as, as a location for research, and now it's, it's obviously a location which is much more than that for me, um, kind of came out of lots of different contingencies. And I feel like I never have quite the right answer um, when, when stating my, my relationship to research in Indonesia. It's probably something a little bit like what, you know, Donna Haraway has described nicely, you know, in terms of, I guess, a kind of situated knowledge, but in the sense that, you know, I'm a product of, you know, Cold War area studies, of kind of an emphasis on, on language training, Asian, Asian language training uh, at schools at a particular moment, um, and uh, other other kinds of, um, I guess, historical contingencies that brought me in relation to Indonesia. So, and I, I can speak more about what it means to work, um, I guess, across different national contexts uh, in a moment. But in any case, you know, my own research kind of, I guess, settled on uh, the way in which, cert- you know, in light of the fact that forms of queer and LGBTIQ+, uh, visibility are coming, had, be, be, had been becoming increasingly legible and visible within transnational politics. Um, yet in the Indonesian context, what had happened uh, during a process of reform after the authoritarian new order, when those forms of queer and LGBTIQ plus politics kind of stepped up and began to voice claims to recognition in the nation, they were violently rejected. So this form of opening, this form of reform, as it's sometimes called in the Indonesian context, reformasi, was not necessarily a democratic space that was open to all voices equally. So I began to think really carefully about the ways in which forms of transnational queer politics, you might call them, or or transgender politics, kind of take shape within their specific uh, local coordinates. And now, of course, in Indonesia is a context with long histories of vernacular, gender and sexual diversity. So I became really interested in this question of the meaning of visibility. So what happens, you know, uh, within this context where you have these long standing forms of visibility, Uh, What happens when you have an additional or additional possibility of political visibility attributed to queer and uh, LGBTIQ plus rights, say, and the frameworks that they um, that they offer. And I think they offered really uh, kind of generative, but also potentially limiting possibilities um, in different ways for different groups of people. So I guess those are the two kind of um, broad uh, ways in which, you know, feminist and and queer approaches have been present in my work. But I guess what I'm really interested in is is thinking about, you know, so I've just described a context in which you have, I guess, the globalization of particular kinds of frameworks, you know, queer, LGBTIQ plus, I mean, and feminist politics in the Indonesian context. None of which uh, are necessarily universal right when they take form, given the kind of diverse or different histories. So I'm interested, you know, if you were to kind of offer or throw out a definition of the of, of feminist anthropology, what would it be, Carly?
0: Oh, dear. Uh, I know that we were briefed on this and so we should have our uh, kind of answer ready to hand. But I think the one thing that's revealed by this conversation is how kind of challenging it is to come up with sort of definitions. And partly because um anthropology and feminist anthropology has been so kind of anti-normative and it's kind of very um, what kind of self-conception um, and one thing that I really liked about a recent um, kind of issue of the journal of feminist anthropology which is the new um, kind of main journal for um the society for feminist anthropology um in the aaa um, is rather than sort of seeking definitions they highlight keywords um, and those keywords are a, kind of a way into a conversation rather than a foreclosure with definitions you're sort of thinking typologically and categorically about kind of how to contain um a concept And one thing that I kind of quite like about the keyword approach is that it's about kind of prying the lid off of something that you kind of think is contained um, and sort of seeing all of the kind of complex and often contradictory kind of things that live inside. Uh, So some of the keywords that I associate with feminist uh, kind of anthropology um, has um, kind of looking back, especially at this genealogy that we've been tracing, uh, kind of how, Feminism and kind of feminist theories have been uh, kind of taken up in anthropology from the Australian perspective, um, has been uh, a keyword that I associate with that is um, kind of social justice in the sense that it was really born out of the crucible of um, the kind of Marxian um, kind of critiques of um, kind of dispossession and enclosure um, and the um, kind of really gendered uh, kind of dimensions of that with uh, struggles for, say, Wages for housework and the invisibility of, kind of women's economic uh, contributions that crossed paths with the Vietnam War and uh, kind of concerns about empire and violence and uh, kind of imperial imperial formations from an Australian perspective and our complicity uh, kind of with those wider geopolitical kind of movements. So kind of one um, kind of keyword that I associate with feminist anthropology from an Australian kind of point of view uh, is gender justice uh, kind of broadly. And of course, again, that sort of opens up all sorts of complexities about what does that mean? And so like, how might we sort of mobilize it and justice for whom and under what conditions? Um, but again, that sort of opening is what I think is really interesting rather than a kind of definitional kind of foreclosure. Um, and, um, kind of reproduction is the other kind of one that I sort of want to, uh, kind of highlight as a keyword that I think is really meaningful in, uh, the debates about, uh, kind of, and one of the contributions of feminist, uh, kind of anthropology, as we're thinking about, um, kind of our inheritances and how to kind of push against the patriarchal kind of framing of inheritance. Um, And of course the GEMS Collective has done that kind of really effectively. So thinking about kind of alternative genealogies of inheritance uh, and from who we owe our debts to and who we've um, sort of been um, kind of sustained by uh, in our projects, intellectual projects, as well as our personal projects Um, and reproduction across generations uh, necessarily engages with those kind of debts. Um, And I think that reconceptualizing kind of theory along the lines of reproduction is something that feminist anthropology can do really well because we always bring together both uh, the concern for the kind of bibliographic, um, what sort of debts do we owe uh, kind of in terms of our citations, our fellow travelers who have, have supported us and helped us think. Um, and then also the ethnographic perspective as well, kind of how do we sort of sustain the conversations and reproduce them and help them nourish into the future, uh, kind of based on our commitment to particular communities, often uh, communities that are spread across um, the globe. So those are the two key words that I would uh, kind of add, uh, gender justice and reproduction as ones that I strongly associate with feminist anthropology, and also uh, a bit perverse in the sense that I'm kicking against the kind of framing of definitions uh I think that one thing that uh, feminist anthropology does really well is unsettle uh, like what we think we know and ask us to kind of consider why we think we know it um, and uh, to open rather than foreclose um, those conversations. Ben, now that I've uh, disrupted your definitional schema, how do you define feminist anthropology?
1: Thank you so much, Kali. That's an absolutely brilliant, um, you know, anti-definition <laughs> of
0: being perverse
1: <laughs> of feminist anthropology. Um, I mean, I think what is super interesting about holding femi- f- you know, feminism and anthropology in the same frame is that both kind of address difference in a kind of in in ways that are not always compatible. compatible. <laughs> you know, and also kind of link, I guess, theory to empirical research in ways that sometimes, um, I guess, jar up against one another. And I guess for me, it's precisely that kind of, you know, Marilyn Stradan in the what I believe or from memory is the inaugural issue of Australian Feminist Studies, in fact, Wrote an essay on this precise topic, thinking about the kinds of ways in which feminism and anthropology might be might be understood as a, a kind of useful <laughs> enterprise to think together or not. So when I kind of you know, and, and when I'm approaching uh, feminism and anthropology, I'm often thinking along those lines. So I think one way in which um, I see this bearing out. And we can read it in the historical, you know, h- histories of, of feminist anthropology in, in Australia that we've kind of reconstructed, is the ways in which it's actually very difficult to, to chart what you might call a, a single thread, right, of feminist anthropology in Australia. I think it's really interesting to ask, you know, why that might be the case. Um, I think what we've kind of tried to do is to, you know, through the initial round table, which we brought together kinds of, you know, a series of, um, you know, senior scholars uh, who have experienced uh, doing feminist anthropology and kind of shaping the the field, is to kind of shed light on why why that that absence, why that uh, kind of lack of, I guess, um, boundedness, and um, I guess, uh, and a
0: clear canon in the sense that you know if you look at um, you sort of review essays that often emanate from um in the United States, the Academy of America, there's a kind of clear sense of a citational coherence there. There's a kind of shared um, kind of feminist community, whereas I think you're right that in uh, the Australian uh, kind of genealogy of feminist anthropology, it feels much more like diverse coalitions Mm -hmm. rather than a kind of settled um, conversation, I guess.
1: That's that's, that's a really nice way to put it. So I mean I remember one of the ideas behind this panel came to, and I think Shiori, you were there, and Carly, perhaps you were there too, was you know sitting at a, a I believe it was a Sherry Ortner's, um, Feischrift, yeah, at, at the Triple A's, and I just I remember kind of you know being blown away by this kind of incredible group of feminist anthropologists. I can't remember who was there exactly, but Sylvie Yanagisako, and it's seeing. Um, and several others. Clara Hahn, I think, was on it. Yeah,
0: it might have been. Yeah. It was, you know, the sort of powerhouses of the um, kind of American Academy at that yeah. sort of moment. It was a really kind of, uh, you know, sort of tightened to the field as it were.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I I mean, I kept kind of thinking about the different edited volumes, for instance, edited collections um, the you know, like Naturalizing Power um, and, and many others that had been published by, you know, either one or more, or often more, of, of that particular group of people. Um, and I was just struck by in that moment, both an or kind of awe of, of how kind of, uh, I guess, clarified and canonical this, this um, group of, of feminist anthropologists appeared, but also how my own kind of anthropological and in my case, Asian studies training had never um, revealed such a formation in, in the Australian context. So with that in mind, I began discussing, you know, with with uh, Shiori initially and, and Yukali, and, and since we've widened the discussion in lots of different ways as to, you know, how and why we could start to think about or trace or map out these kind of fragmented genealogies, um, you know, to, to really shed light on, you know, I guess what that to think about those genealogies in terms of the historic, you know, the history of knowledge production in a particular context in order to shed light both on the development of theory and theoretical knowledge in anthropology. So paying more attention to the conditions of knowledge production, kind of, you know, as Sarah Ahmed has has referred to as, you know, the citational relational, for instance, or the practices that she describes in, um, on on diversity work in, uh, on being included, I think, and in complaint you know, as a lens on kind of the present in, in say, anthropology, both in the discipline of anthropology, but also more widely in Australia. So I guess for me, it kind of settled, you know, in my interest in a kind of feminist perspective on anthropology, if we could call it a feminist theory of anthropology, was thinking more carefully those two things together, the conditions of knowledge production, um, you know, both in terms of the kind of political economy of of the institutions that make knowledge production possible, um, the dynamics of how and in what ways fieldwork is is o- available and open to who, and in what ways, of course, that has you know, gendered and sexual dimensions, as as lots of really interesting work has shown, um, as well as the kinds of um, ways in which certain voices might be included and excluded, right, in, in what counts as a canon in the first place, you know, say in economic anthropology um, or, or medical anthropology. So, you know, those kinds of conversations, I guess, were, were precisely, I guess, to me, a, fem- a feminist anthropology project, drawing together these relations in, in, in order to shed light on on certain the operations of, of inequality, effectively addressed at, you know, a certain kind of, I guess we could call it patriarchal, but also heteronormative and, and, and cisgendered um, system. So I don't know whether, Shiotti, you wanted to to add further to, to, to this and thinking about, I guess, your own, you know, working understanding of feminist anthropology.
0: We can say definition, it's okay.
2: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Well, I feel like you've covered both of you have covered an entire field of feminist anthropology, going back to the genealogies as well, and almost suggesting as well like um why there is no um, boundedness or uh citation practice uh that that we find in let's say American feminist anthropology, so that's a really important food for thought uh, for me um, yeah, a definition of feminist anthropology listening to all everything that you guys have said um. In simple way, I think is a kinder and more caring um, anthropological practice is probably how I would summarize feminist anthropology uh, for me and also by listening to you all. Um, As Ben said previously, the scholarly generosity is something I think is a hallmark of feminist anthropology, creating that inclusive space that opens up anthropology, not just to a specific kind of people, but to pretty much everyone. So I think that would involve rethinking some of uh, what's considered the classic anthropological methodologies of being a sole person, um, being in a village for a long period of time. Um, as Ben mentioned, a masculine way of, masculinized way of doing fieldwork. I think that's something we definitely need to uh, think about. And feminist anthropology is a place that can, such conversation can happen and also agree that theories or rethinking canon citation practice is also an um, important aspect of uh, feminist anthropology. Um, I have my personal um, experience with this. I, I went to the field looking at you know older people, uh, doing lots of uh, public events, lots of public activities, and thinking, oh, great, I see so many examples of active aging. And I thought, my thesis is all about active aging. And then six months later, I realized, wait, only men are talking about activating, aging, <laughs> no women are using the word active aging. So then I realized, wow, like all the theories that I've read on aging was a lot to do with active aging, and therefore I went to the field looking for active aging, and I was about to reproduce the knowledge around that masculinized concept. So I think uh, rethinking theories and to think about the uh, masculine or heterosexual bias in our own canon itself is something that we really have to um, rethink and push against uh, in feminist anthropology. And uh, and lastly, I think um, communications of output um, in more diverse way is something um, that we can do. So not just in journal article format or in writing format, but things such as what we're doing now, a podcast uh, that reaches more diverse audience, uh, more intergenerational, hopefully, audience as well. And I, I think for that, Kali um, just published a really exciting uh, graphic novel. So maybe I will uh, bring the table back to Kali and tell us more about that uh, book and motivations for writing that novel.
0: Oh, thanks, Shiori. Yeah, I think that um, your sort of provocation to think about kind of how we sort of communicate um, our sort of anthropological kind of insights in a feminist uh, kind of way is a really good one. And, uh, one of my sort of motivations for undertaking this project was, um, due to my really, really long commitment to, um, kind of co-authors and co-researchers in Paraguay. Uh, and that's motivated in large part by a kind of shared feminist commitment, um, and kind of queer anti-normative commitment, um, uh, to, um, the kind of ways that, um, kind of scholarship has been extractive, um, and sort of channeled towards the global north through, um, kind of outlets such as paywall uh, kind of journal articles and expensive books and whatnot. But even more to the point, the sort of um, kind of erasure of um, kind of Paraguayan uh, kind of partners and co-thinkers uh, and especially kind of feminist and queer co-thinkers um, is uh, kind of really troubling legacy um, of malinowski Malinowskian kind of solo field worker um, kind of archetypes. And as much as we sort of press against um, the kind of malinowskian um, kind of boundaries that have long configured kind of fieldwork and have you know problematized those critique them to no end and yet every grant proposal that recenters a kind of lone ethnographer kind of marching off into the field which is elsewhere kind of recenters exactly that uh, kind of archetype so one of the motives to do this kind of big co-authored kind of visual uh, kind of project was to work with Paraguayan artists and also um, Rocio Silvero, who is my co-researcher and feminist activist, feminist sociologist in uh, Paraguay and who is one of the sort of main characters of uh, this book. So I owe an enormous kind of intellectual and personal debt to Rocio and to Enrique and David, the uh, kind of artists who have worked on the project and see we've all sort of see this as part of um, the kind of project of advancing kind of feminist politics in Paraguay as much as in, um, in Australia, in the sense that um, kind of being able to center um, kind of feminist ways of knowing uh, kind of through embodied practice, through kind of kin relations, through um, kind of questions around relational belonging to land are all sort of Fine and good in the abstract when we talk about it in uh kind of theoretical terms um but are sort of made meaningful when they can be sort of put to use um in particular places like um kind of paraguay or rather sort of wrestled um in the very communities that are sort of giving rise to these theoretical insights so to kind of treat my collaborators as kind of co-theorists and co-thinkers as part of the feminist uh, kind of project and one that's been um, kind of challenging and kind of difficult in the sense that writing a kind of big book together with four people is you know enormously difficult but so rewarding at the same time uh, because hopefully what comes out of it is um you know the manifestation of those uh kind of long conversations and interdependencies and uh kind of forms of community building so That's something that I feel like I can kind of do now that I'm a sort of an established scholar. I'm really cognizant of the fact that that also requires huge amounts of resources. Um, It's not easy to fund these projects. It's not easy to keep the team going kind of over years um, with many cases of precarious labor for various members of the team kind of involved. So um, Shiori, your insight about uh, kind of feminist thinking also Of being embedded in these wider kind of questions around uh, the arrangement of power within institutions, within our scholarly communities, whose voices are heard and why um, is as much a part of our kind of theoretical conversations as it is about the kind of pragmatics of what we kind of do. So suturing that together um, in our kind of scholarship, I think is a huge part of it. And um, hopefully uh, at the end, we'll have a beautiful kind of co-written, collaborative, um, kind of exciting uh, kind of book that can speak to um, kind of gender justice in Paraguay, Australia and elsewhere, um, but also a recognition that the kind of heteronormative and um, kind of deeply vested institutional interests that sort of maintain particular forms of privilege um, make these really difficult uh, to manifest. Ben!
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would totally, um, yeah, like like echo that and applaud that kind of attention to, and I think it goes to that question that I asked or um, mentioned previously about attending to the kinds of conditions of knowledge production within their broader kind of infrastructures and and political economy is is a really vital aspect of of my, what I understand to be a feminist project um, of of doing anthropology. I mean, and that goes for, you know, all stages of the scholarly process, right? Right from how we conceptualize the field um, through through to um, what data collection looks like, what ethnographic research looks like, what the writing process looks like, and then through right through to what does scholarly what does scholarly publishing, um, you know, and, and other forms of publishing, uh, actually entail, and who do they benefit? Um, so to that end, I, you know, I've recently been engaging in different ways, you know, in ways really born out of a deep dissatisfaction, um, I guess with the kinds of work that were uh, kind of the normative models that were available, have been available to me, uh, working at a, you know, an elite institution in in the Global North at, at the University of Melbourne, which of course um, is, is, is wonderful in so many ways in, in, in terms of the resources that it, it offers me. But I, I became increasingly kind of uncomfortable with the kind of, sing- I guess the single author uh, model of, of scholarly knowledge production. So in a couple of projects um, I've been working on, particularly in the f- field of global health. So increasingly, I've been working in the field of HIV and AIDS activism, um, and uh, kind of addressing various kinds of ways in which uh, global treatment and prevention programs for HIV operate on the ground in, in Indonesia. I've been working alongside Indonesian public health Practitioners and activists as well, and so increasingly, what what I've what I've enjoyed doing really is is working together and alongside my you know collaborators, including collaborators from from my first period of field work, to try to write um you know co authored pieces together in, in different formats. So for instance, one in in Transgender Studies Quarterly is a short translation along with a int- uh, translation of an essay. By Ruli Malai, who's a senior trans woman activist or, or trans woman activist in Indonesia, um, along with an introduction that I, I wrote, a trans kind of translator's introduction about the impact and impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the trans community in Jakarta um, and their responses to it. And I mean that project was was incredibly um, re- you know enjoyable and revitalizing but also really crucial I think in a way um, to continue to shed light on or draw attention to the, the the ways in which the global pandemic was not experienced by all communities or, or groups of people equally right according to geographical location citizenship um, race gender sexuality class and so on right it, it really, is a beautiful essay that, that drew attention to the unequal impacts of the pandemic and also really sheds light on the ways in which many of our presumptions about the pandemic, um, say you know, in, in Melbourne or in the Australian context where I was, Kind of a, a grounded in in a set of un- a series of universal assumptions, right? About what how, how people are uh, anticipated to behave, right? Whether that be the kind of um, gendered space of the home as a kind of domestic enclosure uh, where you could safely uh, retreat to because it was just available and to everybody in the same way. Um, it was just kind of sitting there un- unproductive, ready to be requisitioned, as Fiona Jenkins has has referred to it. Um, but uh, but I, I I continue to kind of see. The, the vitality of you know what what we might call cross cultural insights um in a, in a different guise right to sometimes how how those kinds of insights have been framed right with the singular authoritative voice of the anthropologist speaking um, about um, their in- interlocutors or their informants um, so I guess that's that's just one example of of the ways in which i've been thinking about about my work i mean i guess here i'm I'm attracted to a question about um I guess the, or perhaps returning to the uh, point that you raised right at the beginning, Carly, about uh, generation, right? Or the kinds of um, ways in which we might continue to generate um, opportunities, possibilities, futures for doing feminist and queer anthropology um, in Australia. And I know that in each of you know each of us in both together in our own ways have been have been you know seeking to do that. Um, I mean, you know, one obvious space and one that is clear if if, if you look at the kind of genealogies of, of the tradition of, of feminist anthropology in Australia that we've kind of traced since the first roundtable has been through forms of supervision, mm-hmm. right? Practices of of schol- uh, the reproduction of certain schol- scholarly knowledge and so on. Um, I mean, I can speak a little bit about it, but but I'd love to hear first from from perhaps you, Shiori.
2: Um, About the generation of the future of doing a feminist anthropology.
1: Yeah.
2: Is that right? Is Big question.
1: Okay? <laughs> <laughs> For your own contribution.
2: <laughs> sure. No, I loved what you said, Ben, about um, how you are now shifting more towards co-publishing and co-publishing with uh, people who are based in Indonesia as well. And I think that's something that I think would um, be the important feature of the future of feminist anthropology um, in that, especially during COVID, um, a lot of people couldn't move beyond um, their neighborhood. And of course, the fieldwork became very difficult. And obviously, um, a lot of us started to do online interviews and they're great as well, and probably very accessible. But at the same time, uh, many people, including myself, have uh, started to collaborate more with people in the field. So, for example, now I'm looking at um, the impact of the plastic that comes from Japan uh, and end up in Malaysia. And originally I was planning to do a fieldwork all by myself in the tradition of anthropology. And of course, COVID meant that I couldn't do that anymore. And there was a chance encounter with um, researchers based at University of Malaya and together we are now doing uh, collaborative uh, fieldwork collaborative uh, brainstorming um, including students uh, of University of Malaya and that has been such a wonderful and enjoyable experience so I think a more collaborative form of um, knowledge production with people who are based in the field um, is one thing and I think that comes with it is um, is a citation practice of feminist scholars or scholars based in um, the field site that where we conduct field work. Uh, so that includes, as I said, citation as well as um, in, let's say, for example, seminar series, uh, thinking about who to invite. And I think um, instead of being the one-way street uh, of knowledge uh, transfer, I think uh, the, the future of feminist anthropology or the future of anthropology is truly the exchange of knowledge uh, between, yeah, people at different um, areas of the world. So I would um, I would say these are the two things that I think I want to see as the important feature of the future of feminist anthropology. Um, yeah, what about you guys? Carly?
0: Yeah, great questions. And I... Um... Love the kind of focus on, or the sort of continuing focus on, uh, kind of collaborative uh, kind of sensibilities. Um, it reminds me of a kind of wonderful edited volume by Liana Chua and Nayanika Mather, like Who Are We? Um, reimagining Alterity and Affinity in Anthropology, that kind of questions like when anthropologists address, um, like, well, we all know that the theory of such and such. Um, it presumes a kind of um, a homogenous and kind of located um, kind of interlocutor with certain um, kind of class, intellectual, um, kind of gendered privileges. Um, and I think that one thing that we've done really successfully in this conversation is highlight all the ways in which our different projects are kind of pressing against that we, and also to kind of think about the we in a kind of much more um, kind of feminist way, right? In the sense that, like when you're talking about we um, in your project, you're often sort of talking about your group of students and co-kind of uh, researchers and co-authors, um, and uh, that's much more sort of inclusive, which is really cool. Um, and I guess the only sort of other thing that I would add in terms of feminist futures. Uh, so, in my sort of recent work, particularly looking at finance, um, you kind know, future is something that very much concerns, uh, the financial interests that, um, I'm sort of tracking and doing ethnographic kind of work with, um, especially kind of futures of, um, a warming planet and planetary collapse. Uh, how to protect uh, financial value in the context of uh, kind of that damage? It's modeling and creating scenarios kind of around those futures. Uh, so one thing that my kind of feminist commitments have really pressed me to do is to kind of think about taking seriously the kind of vernacular imaginaries and logics around speculation that depart from those uh, kind of financial interests. So ways of kind of thinking about the future and speculating and imagining um, that are themselves theory building um, and theory building that's undertaken by my Paraguayan kind of interlocutors through kind of speculative imaginaries. And the reason that I think it's feminist or that I sort of cast it as feminist is that this, as we've discussed, this sort of long concern in feminist anthropology um, and feminist theory kind of more broadly around enclosure and erasure and capture especially how the kind of value that's produced by uh, kind of marginalized um subjects subjects that are cast as um as dangerous or kind of deviant are then sort of enfolded into the value production machine of um kind of interested um and vested interests should we say um and so that sort of feminist insight is something that's like we as a kind of as a group, as a collective is worth kind of thinking about um, kind of queer speculation, feminist speculation, kind of alternative imaginaries of the future, forms of speculation that have, uh, sit outside of and uh, depart from kind of financial modes of speculation. Kind of also set up politics around um, kind of capture and complicity to kind of think about how and under what conditions um, those subjects of the people and the communities who are erased from the kind of financial ways of think, thinking about the future uh, to prevent that from being sort of just simply enfolded into the value production machine uh, that creates um, financialized visions of what's to come. And uh, feminist politics does that really well. Uh, and feminist anthropology does that really well and gives us powerful tools um, to resist the um, the sort of both the erasure of those forms of value as well as the capture and conversion um, of that value. So, um, in that sense, the feminist future is also, I think, a kind of activist and um, kind of politically pointed um, kind of politics about the future um, and what sort of communities can thrive. So, Ben.
1: That's so wonderful. Such, um, yeah, illuminating and. Uh, interesting responses. I mean, I guess in terms of thinking about the future of feminist and I mean, I'm adding kind of queer as well here. Um, kind of gesturing to the opportunities, I guess. Um, that that feminist anthropology, uh, has offered, um, alongside and and really, um, in contributing to the possibility for forms of queer anthropology. But I guess in in thinking about um, uh the future of, of feminist anthropology. I mean, I, I was drawn to that review essay that Margot Weiss um, recently published in Feminist Anthropology, again, um, a, a journal of the uh, American Anthropological Society dedicated to, to feminist anthropology, founded in 2019. Yeah, quite recently, so. yep. Um,
0: which is itself telling.
1: Yeah, where that's right, which is telling, which is it took so long to kind of um, Get it, get, it, get it out there as its own kind of subfield um, with, with its own journal. But Margot Weiss you know, asks or, or identifies a kind of tension between proper objects of queer anthropology and improper objects of queer anthropology and kind of traces out, I guess, a, a genealogy of the, the recent work in the past decades, um, or decade or so really, of this incredible explosion of diverse forms of um, queer, queer anthropology. I mean, I guess sitting from the Australian kind of context, um, I guess I'm drawn to, and, and I think that's a super productive way to put it, but sitting from the Australian context, I guess, you know, what what I'm more interested in is, is less perhaps the proper objects, but maybe the, 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 the proper relations that make possible um, feminist and, and queer forms of anthropology. And that includes the kind of, Ways in which we foster environments for students, right, and the kinds of projects that we might invite or or make 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 space for to to put away, put put in away. So one of the most you know illuminating and exciting uh, aspects of of my career over the past few years has been supervising students, and and this is something that I think I think that. In our conversation in the first round table came up in really important ways that relationship which it's, you know obviously founded in certain patriarchal norms, right The, the idea of the supervisor with with who is the the front of knowledge and, and kind of bestows it upon you also initiates you into a tradition of sorts via all kinds of rituals um, which which are sustained to this day but you know in in, in supervising students and, and I have to say the only topics that I 've supervised today are queer and trans topics. Um, you know, I've been thinking about the ways in which, you know, insti- if, if not institutional spaces, then the kinds of, you know, relationships that we might think of with, with student work, right, with su- supervisory work, and then what kinds of ways we might uh, open anthropology and ethnographic research in particular, which I think remains so vital and so important um, to, to kind of alternate forms of, I guess, what you might call orientations or perspectives on um on on you know dominant assumptions about how the world works so you know other than to say you know my my student dylan Strann um wrote an incredible uh thesis titled what are your gender goals starting hormones as a trans young person in 2010s victoria um which won the australian anthropological society honors thesis prize was, was just an incredibly wonderful um, interrogation, I guess, of the meaning of emerging forms of, of transgender health, transgender medicine at a particular point in time. And I really thought, you know, in, in the possibility of opening space for sh- such ethnographic work, there was an opportunity for such rich, contextualising insights that I, I think perhaps may not have been possible um, were, were an ethnographic Um, perspective have not been used. So, you know, that's just kind of a long-winded way to say, you know, making space for more uh, diverse and more uh, different ways of doing uh, anthropological research is probably, for me, central to the future of queer and feminist anthropology, particularly uh, considering the institutional constraints that we may find ourselves in. where we don't necessarily have uh, formalized programs in queer studies in the Australian context, for instance. Uh, queer anthropology is, is not a field that is, is uh, essentially institutionally established to my knowledge at all um, in the Australian context. So I guess that's probably where I would uh, point my attention.
0: Terrific. Well, it feels like that's a kind of wonderful place to kind of both end and then think of future openings uh, you know, for our conversation. Ben, Shuri, thank you, and see you for the next one. Thank you so much, Holly. It's
2: it's